Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So the other night I was uh, laying on the floor of my two boys' room, the youngest, seven and five-year-old, and um, and we're kind of working our way through and we're we're in um, kind of the book of Joshua, and I don't read to them. I just tell them the stories. Uh, it works a little bit better at their age, and um, and it's more fun, you know. And so we we, we did the the walls of Jericho, and uh, and then we we did the the thing that happens right after that, which is where um, they actually lose a battle. The children of Israel they they go to this little city called Ai. Um, it's supposed to be a quick and easy victory. It's a shoe in and they end up getting their clocks cleaned. They, they're, they're humbled. They, they lose the battle. And uh, Joshua goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, what gives? You know, we, the, you promised us victory. You told us that even bees would come and help us <laughs> if, if we started to lose. And, and here, our second battle in, uh, you're, the people are scared now. You know, what gives? And there was a reason behind it. You know, there was a man who had stolen some stuff, and God was setting things right and teaching his people some lessons early on and the whole thing. But I'm sharing the story, and my five-year-old, who um, isn't, isn't my, st- my scholar, <laughs> and he, he, sometimes I'm not even sure he's listening to anything I say, um, he says, he stops me and he says, Dad. And I, I said, yeah, what is it, Noah? And he said, if God made a promise then why didn't he keep his promise? <laughs> and I said, Noah, that's an excellent question. I'm really glad you asked it. And I said, and here's the reason why. I said, because sometimes the promises of God are absolute, you know, meaning that he's going to keep his promise um, and, and, that, and it is what it is. Like, he's not going to move on that. And I said, but there are other promises in the Bible that are called we would call partner promises, meaning that God tells us that if we do something, then he will do something. And it's a conditional promise wherein there's a relational aspect to it and we have a part to play. You know, and so some promises are absolute and some are conditional or partner promises. Like, for instance, God promises in his word, he says, uh, commit your works unto the Lord, and he will establish your thoughts. So he gives us an action, and on the other side of that action, he gives a promise that he will do something also. That's a partner promise. You know, we commit what we do to him, and he will establish our thoughts. He'll make it settled in our mind what we're to do, you know. And so as we're looking at Second Peter chapter 1, what we have is this amazing chapter that, that in its sum total really is a partner promise. And it's an amazing partner promise. Because it begins by God, through the Holy Spirit, telling us that if we would do, if we would take action in uh, eight ways, then God... On the other side of that, his promise is that he's going to make sure seven things happen for us. And so the part that we play, the action on our part, um, begins in verse 5, where Peter says this. He says, giving all diligence, he says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, 
and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And so he tells us eight things that we're to add to ourselves, or or eight ways that we're to be diligent. There's something that we're to do, and so we're to add to our faith. We're to add virtue to our lives. We're to add knowledge. We're to add self-control. That's what temperance is. We're to add patience. We're to add godliness, brotherly kindness, and finally, agape love. You know, and, and so he tells us that we're to do those things, and then on the other side of it, there's a promise that if we're diligent in that, God's going to respond, and he's going to make sure seven things happen in our lives, and they're absolute. He tells us, and, and we can read it, verse 8, he says, For if these things are in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, rather than this, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fail. And then finally, for so an entrance shall be ministered to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the seven outcomes that God promises, if we would uh, add to our faith, he says that, first of all, we'll be effective. There'll be effectiveness. We won't be barren or unfruitful. I want to be effective with my life. That's more important to me than most other things. You know, everything else kind of I leave behind, but the, the ways in which I'm effective, that lives on. You know, I want to be effective. He says that we'll have intimacy. He talks in verse 8 about having a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's knowing Jesus. I want to know Jesus. The, the, the privilege that it is to be in a, in, a, in a personal, real relationship with God through his son Jesus. Like that's a privilege that I have. And he says I'm going to have that. There's going to be intimacy. He says I'm going to have vision for my life. If, if you're not blind, then that means you do see. And I want to have vision for my life. I want to have vision of his kingdom. I want to see invisible things. He says he promises that he's going to make that happen in my life. So I want that. He says it's going to be there. I'm going to have vision. Another thing is that I'm going to have protection. Is that he's going to make sure that I don't fall. He's going to surround me in such a way that I don't fall away from him. Whether that's protecting me from temptation, protecting me from myself, protecting me from attacks from the enemy, things of that nature. He's saying that there's going to be protection. That's another promise that he gives. Another, uh, another thing that is, is of extreme value to me and should be to us is that there's going to be certainty of our calling. He says, wherefore, give diligence, if we're diligent in these things, that it will make our calling an election sure. Now, I want to know that I'm doing in my life what he's called me to do in my life, that I'm not spinning my wheels or wasting my time. And so there's certainty of my calling. And then uh, sixthly, there's going to be security. He says, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. And then also there's going to be a full reward a full reward where I'm not ashamed before him at his coming. And so it's a partner promise that if I do what Peter is exhorting, then God is going to come through on the other side and those things are going to be promises that are real in my life. And so we've been looking at these things and today we're going to look at this thing called godliness. He says that we're to add uh, godliness to our lives. 
And so that's the, the thing that, that we're looking at this morning that he talks about there uh, in verse 5 at the very end that we're to add godliness. So what does it mean to be godly? The word that's used, uh, that Peter employs, the word that's translated godly, the definition of it literally is piety or holiness or good devotion. That's the literal uh, word. And it's kind of where we get, the, uh, we get the idea of being sanctified or set apart. You know, and so there's to be uh, uh, something in our life where we're becoming more separate from our old life, separate from the world, and more set apart unto the things of God. Now, to really understand what it means to be godly, uh, a few other scriptures and places where the word is used that kind of give some context of what it means to be set apart or to be sanctified or to be a godly person. And so uh, it, it means, um, first of all, that there's to be some distinction in our lives. At first, I use the word separation, but I, I don't really like that word because uh, separation kind of gives gives kind of this feeling like that we're that we're to be isolated, like the Amish or you know puritanical or something like that. And that's not really the idea. It's not that we're to be separate because our mission is to be. In the world, our mission is to reach the lost. We have to identify with the culture that we're in, but we are to be distinct. There is to be a difference between us and the world that we're interacting with. And so Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and he's in context, he's talking about that we're to be people of prayer, but he tells us that when we pray, he says in verse 2 there that we're supposed to pray for kings and for all that are in authority. Why? that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. In other words, he's saying that, that you know, be in prayer for authorities and governments and town boards and planning boards and inspectors. And, you know, he's saying be in prayer. He's saying so that we can continue uh, to lead the kind of lives that God has called us to, that we can continue to be godly, that we can continue to let our light shine, that we have the freedom to do that, that there is that distinction in our lives, that that's maintainable in the society that we're in. He calls us to that. Another uh, context in which godliness is used concerns our behavior, the way that we behave. If you look at uh, 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, it's up on the screen. Um, Paul is talking again to young Timothy, a young pastor, and he says, But if I tarry long, he says that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And so he's linking there this idea of being godly, what it means to be godly, with our behavior. We are part of the church. We're part of God's called out ones. We're called in this distinct place. And part of that is the way that we behave. And so Paul says to Timothy there that the things that I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you so that you might know how you might behave And that behavior is a part of being godly. It's godliness. And so it kind of speaks to the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we make decisions, the way that we uh, hold values. These things are our behaviors and is part of being godly. Another um, way that godliness shows itself in the life of a Christian is in the choices that we make as men. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Paul says this to Timothy again. He says, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself 
rather unto godliness. And then he gives another example. He says, for bodily exercise, going to the gym, working out, all that kind of thing, nothing wrong with it. He said, it profits little. Now, it, it, the, the Greek is literally, it profits for a little, meaning eventually it's going to catch up with you. <laughs> you, can, you can outrun, uh, you know, unhealth for a while, but eventually... You, you're not going to make it. Even Jack LaLanne died. You know, <laughs> he held it for a long time, but he lost the battle. You know, he goes, it profits for a little, but, but then he says, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so he gives two examples there where, where the contrast is godliness. On the one hand, he's saying profane and old wives' fables. Now, what is that? That's watching Desperate Housewives on TV. That's watching reality TV show. That's, that's the profane. And what he's saying there is turn off the TV, right? Put down Reader's Digest or maybe Sports Illustrated, he's saying refuse those things and exercise yourself rather unto godliness. In other words, you know, figure out the things in your life that are unprofitable. They're not sinful, maybe, but they're unprofitable, and, and trade those things for something that's going to build godliness into your life. And then the second example is, is just the action, so not what we take in, on TV or in magazines or whatever else, but now what we're doing with our time. There are things that we do that are, maybe they're even profitable a little. But he's saying, but godliness, to exercise ourselves unto godliness, is profitable in every area of our life. And what Paul is simply saying here, he's not calling us to to be hermits or to do nothing. He's saying, listen, I've lived this life in the Lord long enough to know that anything that you give up to trade for more of God in your life, you're going to say that was a worthy trade. That was a worthwhile transaction to make. I'm glad I did that. I don't regret having stopped doing something in order to give myself more to God. I've never had that regret before in my life. That's what Paul is saying. And so it has to do with the choices that we make of what we allow in and what we do. That, and, and to choose godliness, he says, that's part of being godly, and we're to add godliness. Another way that godliness uh, it touches our lives is in our values, the way our values are shaped. This is a little bit of a longer passage, but I, I, I want to read it to you because it illustrates the, uh, the theme. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. Um, Paul says this. He says, um, if any man teach otherwise, and, and you can just uh, read all of what Paul said, and, and if you're wondering what, teach what? All of what Paul said, okay? <laughs> if any man teach otherwise and consents not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he expands to the whole Bible. <laughs> if anyone teaches you anything else, and the teaching which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, Whereof comes envy, strife, railings, evil surmising, perverse disputing, that's arguments, of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness. So in other words, the false teacher, the person who puts the Bible on the back burner that says we don't need to give ourselves to the things of God, you know, that person also says, hey, gain is godliness. You want to be godly? Get rich. That's godliness. 
He's saying that's not true. He says, from such withdraw yourself. And now here's what godliness is. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So in other words, it's not about how much I gain or how much I have that makes me godly. It's about being content with what I have right now. That's godly. It's being content with what he's given me. And here's why that matters. He had, because we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. So having food and clothing, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich, in other words, if, if you want to make the endeavor of your life, what you value is earthly riches. If that's your values, he says, then the outcome of that is that you're going to fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money, is the root of all evil. That's a huge statement. You can meditate on that for a long time and just carry that out to a thousand conclusions. He says, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, so now in contrast to that guy, now that guy's in the Bible. We see that guy in Cain. We see that guy in Gehazi. We see that guy in Judas. We see that guy show up in the Bible. The guy who he he has kind of, we see it in Lot, right? The, The nephew of Abraham. He's all over the Bible. That guy who knows God, but he decides, you know what? It's worth it to be rich. (laughs) <laughs> and we see what happens to that guy. But he says, but you, O man of God, that's our identity. That's who we are. Flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. That's it. That's the, the end of that passage. But, it, but, it, but godliness, being godly, this call to godliness, it's reflected in our values. What do we value? What's truly valuable to us in our lives? When we, when we weigh things out, if we have to make a choice of what we want to keep and what we want to get rid of, what we're going to hold on to and what we're going to throw in the 20-yard dumpster, what's valuable to us in our life? And what Paul is saying, what the Bible is saying, what Peter is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning is that godliness, to be set apart for God, to have more of God growing up in our lives, that's valuable. That's profitable in all things. And so godliness touches our values. Godliness also directly affects, this is, listen to this guys, it directly affects our ability to understand truth. To understand truth. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect, now watch this, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. In other words, our ability to acknowledge the truth, to comprehend and understand what is true versus what is not true, comes after godliness. Meaning that this this concept of being set apart for God, belonging to God, growing in the things of God, is directly related to our ability to comprehend truth. Truth comes after godliness. So the more of God we have, and the more of us we surrender to God, the more truth we're going to understand and comprehend. 
And so godliness affects our ability to understand truth. And then finally, godliness uh, has to do with the type of character that we have. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 11. So the exact same letter that we're studying when we're talking about godliness this morning, the conclusion that Peter comes to at the end of Second Peter, chapter 3, verse 11, he says this, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Now, just so you understand the context, he's talking about the world, physically, completely, entirely. The entire planet, every atom is going to be consumed and dissolved. Seeing then that all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy lifestyle and godliness? Remember, uh, anybody in here, um, I, I mean, I'm young comparatively, but anybody in here ever see the cartoon Inspector Gadget that was on years and years and years ago? Remember at the beginning of every program, he would get a, a message with his assignment and it would say everything, this message will self-destruct in 10 seconds? You know, and he would, he would crumple it up and throw it and his dog would get blasted or something like that. You know, listen, he, here's the reality, is that every physical thing in this entire spectrum of, of, of existence, this world, is one day going to self-destruct. It's all going to be gone. You know, and that should give us a little sense of what's truly valuable. You know, if someone offered you a million dollars or a roll of toilet paper, but the but the the catch is that the million dollars is going to vaporize in 15 seconds. Which one of those two things is more valuable? The roll of toilet paper, right? <laughs> and so, you know, like we might live in this world if we get a full lifespan, 70, 80, maybe 90 years. But at the end of it all, we take none of it with us. And so for us to live our lives for things that are going to dissolve doesn't make sense. And, and, and so to value those things is an error. And, and so what the Bible is telling us is, that, is this. Listen, godliness is valuable for eternity. And so our character, who we are as men, and the things that we value, and the way that we behave, and the choices that we make, to choose godliness over worldliness is a good move. That's what the Bible is telling us. And Peter is saying that we're to add godliness. And so kind of in summation, this whole idea of godliness, godliness is an ongoing work of transformation in every area of our lives. It's an ongoing surrender of myself to God, of my values to God, of my life and my time to God, my resources to God, and allowing him to fill every part of my life, and I'm continually growing more and more in my life towards him. That's what godliness is. So what does godliness look like in the life of a Christian? You and I, we all have extremely complex, complicated lives. We were having a conversation um, right before this Bible study started about how uh, we are faced constantly with interruptions in our life. You know, so you're trying to get something done around the house, and immediately uh, you're called upon to give someone a ride somewhere. 
and then uh, you come back to what you're doing in the house and you notice that you have to uh, cut off a plumbing line and you don't have the right cap, so you have to go to the hardware store. And then your wife calls you and says, could you please pick up a bag of salad? And then you come home, you get back in your project, and she says, could you please come up for dinner? And then, <laughs> and then, and then she says, oh, right after dinner, I have to, so that means now you have to do the dishes and clean up. And then right after that, the kids need to be put to bed. And, you know, and then you have Bible study that you need to prepare for. You know? And, and we, we lead insanely complex lives in the society that we live in that are compartmentalized in a thousand different ways. And so what godliness looks like in the life of a Christian is that in every area of my life, every area, I'm surrendering more to him. And so if I, if I were to just kind of um, make, make an analogy to, to our life and to compare our life to a house, every room of a house represents kind of an area of our life. And, and so like if you were to take your life and you were to say, well, somewhere inside of me, there's a kitchen, okay, this, inside this house that is me, there's a kitchen. What does the kitchen represent? Kitchen represents what I take in, what I'm eating, what I'm putting into me. That's what we do in the kitchen, right? We prepare food that we're going to use to build ourselves up. So what am I putting into my life? What's going in through the eye gate? What's going in through the ear gate? What's going in through the mind gate? What am I allowing into my life in the kitchen? To become more godly is to give God more of that. You know, less Time Magazine, more of the Bible. Less Rush Limbaugh, more of the bridge. You know, it's, it's, it's sanctifying. It's letting more God have more of what goes into my life, giving God more influence in my life. That's giving God my kitchen. Another room in my life is the dining room. The dining room is where we fellowship with people. So it represents my relationships. It represents the people that I fellowship with. And so the relationships in my life, are they more godly or are they more worldly? Do I place more value on the relational aspect I have with people that reflects Christ? Or do I allow the relational aspect that I have with people to reflect other things, worldly things? What's the center of my conversation around? To be growing in godliness is to be letting God have more of an influence in my relationships, both with the saved and the unsaved, bringing God into those relationships. Another room in my house is the family room, and it just represents my family. How, how much of God is in my family life? How, how much am I letting God lead me as a dad to lead my kids in the things of God? Is there sanctification there? Am I growing? Is there a godliness in my family life? There's also my living room. The living room of my life represents where I live. It's my personality. It's who I am. Is God infiltrating more of who I am as a person? What defines me? What makes me me? Is it more God? Or is it other things? What's influencing my personality? Am I letting God grow there? Another room in my life is the recreation room. What I do for fun, my hobbies, the things that I just enjoy. Now, we all have those things. God gives us those things. That's a part of our personality. But am I giving that to God? Is it surrendered to God? Is it controlled by God or does it control me? You know, uh, the recreational things in my life. Um, 
you know, and I, I, I mean, we've all gone through different times. I've had times in my life where I've been out of balance. You know, I'm spending too much time in the gym or too much time uh, playing a game or even a game with my kids. You know, we're just every minute I'm playing cards with my daughter or something like that. You know, but does God have control over that or does he have control over me? Another room in my life is the bedroom. And that's where you sleep, men, right? No, <laughs> I think you get the idea, you know, is that that's a part of, of who we are as men. And, and, and is our sexuality surrendered to the Lord, or is it controlled by our flesh and the world and by other influences? You know, to be growing in godliness means I'm giving God control over that part of my life. Another room of my life is the basement. The basement is where you put the hidden things. And listen, guys, every one of us has a basement. We don't live in the South, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and so, but what am I doing with that? You know, the reality is, is, it, is the light on in the basement? Have I invited God into the dark parts of my life where I say, God, these are the dark parts of me, and I'm not going to try to pretend they're not there, and I'm not going to live in hypocrisy, but God, I'm asking you to deal with the things that are in the basement and clean it out. Lord, change it. Change me. You know, and basements are funny things because you can get rid of 20 things from a basement, and guess what? 20 more things grow into that shelf space somehow, you know? That's just what a basement is, you know? And it's part of what we deal with as men and, and, and humans, right? Is that we have this basement part of our life, but godliness is, is letting God into the basement and saying, God, please, I, I want to live for you. I want to be set apart for you. And so to grow in godliness, which is the call, to grow in godliness means that more and more of every area of my life is surrendered to and controlled by God. Uh, the other morning I was sitting out, there's this beautiful place that the Lord showed me that's, you know, with less than five miles from here, just very quiet uh, public trail that nobody really goes. I don't even want to tell you where it is lest you go there and ruin it for me. But there's this <laughs> I know, godliness. I know I'm a, I'm a very godly man, you know. <laughs> anyway, I was sitting by this lake uh, there the other morning, and it was perfect calm. The, I mean, it was just glass. You could see the reflection uh, perfectly of what was on the other side in, in this thing. And I took a little rock from where I was sitting, and I just tossed it into this perfectly glassy. I sinned against this glassy lake, and I just ruined it with this ripple. But, but I watched this stone land, and I watched the perfect circles of the ripples just begin to extend out from the, the place of impact where this rock hit the, the plane of the water and just move outward from that place. And, and it's, you know, those are the times that you're, you're kind of really already in tune with God. And, and, and I just watched that ripple. And, and the thing that struck me, and I don't want to sound pious or spiritual and say, the Lord spoke to me there. You know, he probably was speaking to me, but it just came in the form of my own thoughts, you know, as I was there, is, is that the, 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 every decision that you and I make in our lives, every action that we take, is like that stone hitting that water. There is a 360-degree ripple effect from every single choice and decision that we make every day of our lives. And here's the problem with that. I mean, because you can't sit in your bed and not, and not do anything. We, have to, we make choices all day long. And so here's the problem with that, is that we can only see in one direction at a time and then maybe a little bit on the peripheral. 
We can't see 360 degrees. So sometimes we make a decision that we think is a really good decision based upon the direction we're looking. But we can't see the entire spectrum of how every decision is going to play out in every other area of life or anyone else's life. And so we need a God that can see circumspectly to help us in our decision-making and to lead us in what we do because he sees what we can't and he's able to help our decisions or bend the effect of our decisions to protect or to work things a certain way. And we need him to do that in our lives. And thus this idea of being godly, that's why Paul says that godliness is profitable in all things. Because as I yield more and more areas of my life to God, and I commit my works to him, and I yield my decision making to him, he's able to protect the ripples that I can't see. And so godliness is vital in the life of a Christian. And so the longer we live in the Lord, or the longer you just live in life, you realize the more you need a shepherd and the more you need the help of someone who can see what you can't. And thus godliness is so incredibly important that we're growing in godliness. And so the final question is this morning is where does godliness come from? How do I do this? What is the process of adding godliness? If I'm to give diligence to add godliness to my life, how do I do that? What does it look like on a daily basis? I believe that the battle for this really is in the mind. And I believe that it starts with realizing, first of all, who God is. You can't become godly if you don't know who it is that you're surrendering to or becoming like. And so it's a realization that he is God Almighty. That's one of the names that he gives himself, that he's God Almighty. Do you know, what, do you know what you, how you translate God Almighty into the English language? Bigger than you think. <laughs> that's, and, and that's true every day. So I just want you to imagine God as big as you can, as, as able as, he, as you can make him in your mind. He's bigger than that. And no matter how big that comprehension or idea of him ever gets, he's infinitely bigger than that. And, and it's to realize that we serve a God that's that big. You know, um, you, you, one, of the, one of the things I was just thinking about yesterday is uh, I, I was just thinking about my son for a minute, the, the same one that I was talking about earlier, the, the one who's not my scholar, you know. Um, and, and I just was, was thinking, you know, at this moment, I, I just want him to know how much I love him. And there's really no way for me to communicate that to him because he doesn't have a cell phone, so I can't shoot him a text message, <laughs> you know? And I can't interrupt my wife to text her to tell her to tell him, Daddy loves you. But I wanted, I just felt like this, I want him to know that I love him. And I thought for a minute, you know, here I'm thinking that in order for me to get that message to him, I, I need to either send a text message or be able to tell him or look in his face or do something for him, you know, and the whole thing. And then it just struck me as like, why don't I just ask God to tell my son how much I love him. Why do I think that that's like beyond God? Why have I made God so small that he can't do that? Like right now, just put a realization in the heart of my son that I love him. Or, or even put it there and he doesn't even know it yet, but let him, let, it, let him realize it 10 years from now or something like that. But just, God, you know, and, and sometimes we rely so little on God because we're so self-reliant on our things. But to realize that he's God, and that he's literally able to do all things. 
But how much do we really trust him with? How much do we really give to him? Realizing who God is, that he is our father. He's our father. He's not just almighty bigger than you think, but that bigger than you think is your dad. And he wants to be your dad. He wants to be your father. Jesus said amazing words in Matthew 23. They're words that if you've been around the Bible, you're probably familiar with them. He said, call no man on earth your what? Father. Now, we look at that as the anti-Catholic verse, right? Like that's the verse we use when, you know, we're, we're, we're debating with Catholics about, you know, this whole thing, you know, and, and nothing against Catholics. You know, that's, I'm just, that's just what that verse has become in New Testament Christianity. But I want you to think about that verse for a minute when Jesus says, because Jesus wasn't giving us that verse as fodder to argue with other Christians, right? That wasn't what was in his mind when he said that. Call no man on earth your father. Why did Jesus say those words? Because what he was communicating to you and I is that the God who is bigger than you think wants to have the place in your life that he is your father. Now, I don't think there is a bigger vacuum that can exist in all of the universe than a father vacuum. That is, that when some father forsakes his place as father in the life of his child, the vacuum that that creates in the life of that child. Because a child needs a father. And so a child that doesn't have a father is going to fill that hole with something. And probably anything. And so a child without a father is going to be fathered by a TV set. He's going to be fathered by his friends. He's going to be fathered by a, a sinful society. He's going to be fathered by anyone who will take that place of father within his life. And what's going to happen, the consequence of that, is that that child is going to become like and is going to reflect the values and the personality and bear the fruit of who the father becomes. Now, if God wants to be our father, and if we're willing to give him that place and say, Lord, I might be a grown man, but I still need a father, and I'm willing to become your son, lay your hand upon my head and make me your son, then the result of that profession, prayer, desire is going to be that God's values, God's personality, God's path in leading, the unfolding of God's plan for your life, and the release of God's resources, help, and power in your life, all of that is going to be given to you because he has become your father. And so godliness begins when I realize who he is, God Almighty, and I realize who he wants to be, my father, And then I make him to have that position within my life. I yield myself as his son. I say, I want you to be my father. Forgive me, Lord, for all of the other father figures I have given influence in my life. And I pray right now that you would become the father over my life. That Donald Trump, and not not in his political thing, but in his business, that he wouldn't be my father. That the men of the world... The things of the world, the humor of the world, 
that those things would not shape my values, but that you, God, would be my father, that you would take your place as father in my life, to realize his promises, to realize what he has for us, and to be rooted in that, to be rooted and grounded in his, uh, in his love. Um, I sat with my son, Rocky. We, we took a hike up Brace Mountain on um, the day after Easter, Resurrection Monday. Um, we, my in-laws were in town. We all went over northeast corner of Dutchess County, highest point in Dutchess County. It's a really beautiful place and a uh, great hike because there's views kind of the whole way up. And um, so Rocky and I went off trail for a while because we saw this other rock ledge off another way and we thought, let's go try and find that and we'll catch up with everyone later. So we went up there and it was just the two of us, me and him, and we got up to this rock ledge and we're looking out and we were literally looking across the entirety of Dutchess County from the highest point in it. We could see um, kind of the middle. We saw Stissing Mountain. You can see over here, you can kind of discern where we're at. You see the Hudson Valley, and then you can see uh, the Schwangunks, and then you can see the Catskills off in the distance. You really can see everything uh, looking back west from that place. And I looked at my son, and I said, Rocky, I said, look, I want you to look at something. And I pointed down in the valley, the Harlem Valley, right there where Route 22 is. It's the lowest point. And, I, and then from there, you can see there, and then you can see kind of Poughkeepsie, which is a little higher, and then you see the Schwangunks, which is a little higher, and you see the Catskills, which are the highest. And I pointed to all four, and I, I said, Rocky, I said, I want you to see that. I see that. Look at that. Look at that. I said, look at that. I said, listen, son. I said, you can have, you choose. You can have that, or you can have that, or you can have that, or you can have that. I said, God has given you that, the, the, the highest. He, he, your life is that mountain, but you can choose where you want to live on it. You can live in the valley if you want, and you can carve out yourself a little garden there, and that can be your existence. Or you can put yourself a little higher at elevation and say, I'm content here. The floods aren't going to get me. Or you can go a little higher. But Rocky, I said, listen, it's your choice. God will give you the mountain of your life. Where do you want to go with it? And that's true for every one of us that's here right now. Is that you're, You are absolutely unique and individual God, there's nobody else like you. There, there's no other relationship that can be had with God than the relationship that you have with God. And he will go as high and as far with you as you want to go. There is no limit. You will grow and grow and grow. You will know him more and more and more if you want to. You will have more and more of his love filling and satisfying your life. You'll have more and more of his spirit flowing into, through, and out of your life. As much as you want, he is limitless in his ability to give. And what he calls us to is to add godliness. More and more of our lives being surrendered more and more to him. And for everything that we give him access to, he gives us of himself. Infinitely more than we're laying down. And he says, add. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.